Turn with me this morning, please, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. He's told me to go easy on him this morning, so I'll keep my powder dry for another day. I can think of at least one person who would disagree with him when he said he always listened and always would reply, but that's for another day as well. Mark chapter 8, and we'll begin to read in God's Word from verse 27. Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels. Amen. Praise God for his inerrant, inspired, infallible, reliable word, translated from the original Greek and Hebrew into our English authorized version. This account has parallel passages not only in Matthew chapter 16, but also in Luke chapter 9. Peter's confession here, thou art the Christ, in verse 29, was really a turning point moment in the Lord's ministry. This was the moment when Christ's identity was revealed and when it was now clear who Jesus really was. He was the promised Messiah. He was the Son of the living God, the one whom the prophets had written and spoken about. At this stage, the disciples, they understood he was the Messiah, but they didn't still really understand what being the Messiah meant. Jesus then takes his disciples aside and he shatters every notion and every dream that they had about him. In verse 31, he says, Firstly, I must suffer. Secondly, I will be rejected. Thirdly, I must be killed. And fourthly, after three days, I will rise again. Now, he doesn't present this in a way that it might happen or that it could happen or that it would be a worst-case scenario. No, he says that the Son of God must suffer, must be rejected, and must be killed. You see, from the foundation of the world, the Father's plan of salvation determined that his only Son would take our place and suffer, not for his sins, but for our sins. He would be rejected, not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. The punishment for sin before Almighty God was death, 
And if Jesus was to save us from death, then full payment for our sin could only be paid by him. Jonathan Edwards once said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 prophesied that the servant of the Lord would bear the sins of the people. So we would be scorned and pierced and despised and rejected and smitten and afflicted and wounded and bruised and oppressed and killed. It had been prophesied and written for hundreds of years, but the Jews had missed it. Isaiah 53 is still a forbidden chapter to the Jews today. They don't talk about it. They don't ask questions about it. And when Jesus explains this to the disciples, they were in shock. They didn't expect it. As far as the disciples were concerned, there was no way the Messiah would have to go through this because, you see, this much they did understand. If Jesus had to walk down death row, then they would have to do the same. These words were a death sentence on Jesus, but it was also on themselves. So this was the last thing that the disciples wanted to hear. Now notice how Jesus began to preach the word in verse 31, but immediately Peter rebukes the word in verse 32. And as we get closer to the great tribulation, and it it will become more difficult, obviously, to be a Christian in an anti-Christian, God-hating world, you might be surprised who will rebuke you and distance themselves from you if you choose to remain a faithful and loyal soldier of Christ. Peter here rebukes the Lord. In other words, he denounces and condemns him. You'll remember the demon that was cast out by the man in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Jesus rebuked that demon because obviously the demons were worthy of condemnation. But Jesus wasn't worthy of this. This wasn't a mild protest. This was a vicious and hostile rebuke from a man who just a short while ago had declared Jesus to be the Christ and the Son of God. But now he rebukes Jesus. He says, this will never happen to you, so you can just forget about it. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. But why would Jesus say that to Peter? Well, because the same devil that had shown up to wreck the plan of God when Christ was fasting in the wilderness has shown up again. This time in Peter, in another attempt to wreck the plan of God. Do you remember in the wilderness when the devil tempted the Lord and he said, command these stones to be made bread, cast thyself down off the temple, worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. You see, at the heart of those temptations was the promise of a kingdom without suffering, without rejection and without death, which is exactly what Peter wanted and what Peter expected. And in the wilderness, the devil was really saying, Follow me, work for me, serve me, promote me, Jesus, and I will give you fame and fortune. There's no need for the cross. There's no need for the cup of wrath. There's no need for pain or for death. But Jesus withstood the temptation. And he said, get thee hence, Satan. Away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Back in the wilderness, the devil departed from him for a season. But it was only for a season. And now he's back again. In this chapter, Mark chapter 8, to seduce Jesus with yet another cheap way to glory. But he doesn't speak through a serpent. He doesn't speak through another demon. He speaks through a Christian. Oh yes, the devil can attack you through another Christian. Or at least someone who calls themselves a Christian. Satan has many disguises. But the devil's disguise doesn't fool the Lord. And as quick as a flash, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Oh, that 
we husbands would be as quick to recognize Satan when he would appear as a beautiful woman, or that our youth would be as quick to recognize Satan when he would appear as a drink or a drug or online pornography, or that congregations would be as quick to recognize Satan when he appears as a pastor who tells them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Lukewarm preachers, they disgust the Lord and one day he will spew them out of his mouth. Oh, that we would all be as quick as the Lord to rebuke the devil and respond just like Jesus and say, get behind me, Satan. You know, it's interesting that when Peter tried to prevent the cross here, the Lord called him Satan. But when Judas Iscariot betrayed him to the cross in Matthew 26, the Lord called him friend. You see, Judas was fulfilling prophecy and he didn't even know it. And now here in verse 34, Jesus was about to explain what the Christian life really involves and what it means for you and for me to really come after the Lord Jesus. Notice he calls the people onto him with the disciples. So this life is not just for the inner circle. It's not just for those who want to progress into the Lord's special forces. It's not just for the pastors or the ministers or the Bible college students or the chosen few. No, this invitation is for all who want to be associated with Christ. This is an invitation for everyone here this morning on what it means for you and I to be born from above. Folks, this is real Christianity. This is an invitation to all sinners to go with Christ into his kingdom where there is real joy and blessing and peace and everlasting life. Of course, invitations to sinners are a common thing. Every faithful evangelist will invite a sinner to come to Christ at some point during their message. But this invitation, this antidote for sin, this cure for the disease of the soul is different because this obliterates most of the invitations that sinners are usually hearing from our pulpits today. You see, this is very clear, very simple, unmistakable. The Lord always spoke plainly, and this, friends, is as plain as it gets. Real preaching will cause people to either hate their sin or hate the preacher. And that's the type of preachers that John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ were. People are so accustomed to preachers being indirect and phony these days that when someone comes along with clear and direct communication, it appears aggressive. But it's not aggressive. It's the truth. And the Lord Jesus always spoke the truth. When the apostles entered the towns and the cities, they knew they would be persecuted and rejected for preaching the truth. But ministers today hold back the truth for fear of losing their members. None of us deserve this invitation or this opportunity. Some of us have spurned multitudes of opportunities to accept this invitation. We are unworthy of it. We, we have done nothing to deserve it. So it is a gracious invitation, but it is also a difficult invitation. You see, it demands of us a sacrifice of everything that is currently precious to us. And yet it is consistent with the kind of invitation that the Lord Jesus gave right throughout his public ministry. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, He that loves his family more than me is not worthy of me. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, If your family doesn't come second to me, then you cannot be my disciple. I know a Christian who was married to a person from an Eastern religion, and the Christian enthusiastically joins in worship with their spouse to a false deity. But that is not putting Christ first. That's putting 
false gods on a par with Christ. In contrast, the early church, they chose to be tarred and burnt alive and fed to all sorts of wild beasts in the Roman Colosseum because they wouldn't worship or sacrifice to the Roman gods. Recently in Pakistan, a lady called Jamela, she had to flee from her husband when he threatened to kill her and their sons when she rejected Islam and turned to Christ. So friends, if we receive this invitation, it can mean division in the family. So it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Which is why Jesus said, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on this earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. Jesus wants us to count the cost to enter this life with both eyes open and be prepared for the worst because it's going to take passion, determination, guts and thick skin here to go through with God. So this passage, in this passage, Jesus gives us another one of those invitations. The disciples had been on a high, but now they've been plunged to an all-time low. You see, they expected the promises brought through the prophets to be fulfilled but now there's all this talk of suffering and rejection and death. They, they had just affirmed the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. He is the Son of God, but now he must suffer and die, and that makes their following him that much more difficult and dangerous. And so he pulls them all together here, and he says the way to glory is through suffering. The way to the crown is through the cross. I will suffer to enter into my glory, and so will you if you're prepared to come after me. The words of Christ in verses 34 through to 38, they really strike a death blow to the cheap, the easy, the feel-good, ask-Jesus-into-your-heart kind of stuff that is often passed off as a gospel today. Many believe they can have Christ without the cross, that they can have the Savior and their sin, that they can follow Christ and yet live like a demon. But Jesus is saying, if you want to come after me, then be prepared to pay a heavy price. So this is the context in which Christ offers this invitation. He says, in spite of the fact I will be killed and that there won't be this instant kingdom that you want or expect, if you still want this, then there are three elements or requirements to this Christian life that you are choosing to live. First of all, there's the principle here in verse 34, and the principle also has three parts. First of all, Jesus says, deny yourself. Self-denial means to disown. Sever the links. Separate yourself from the person that you are. The natural, despised, sinful self in whom dwells no good thing. This is a call to disassociate yourself from everything that you have and are. All your plans and dreams and ambitions and interests and your lusts, you cease to associate with the person that you are. When Peter denied the Lord outside the high priest's palace, he said, I know not the man. And this is what we have to say about ourselves. The first essential to the Christian life is to cast away everything about yourself and submit to Christ and his plan and his purpose for your life. Denying yourself is not, of course, the same as self-denial. People practice self-denial as a New Year's resolution. They might give up the chocolate or the sweets. People practice self-denial during Lent. They might go off the cigarettes or the alcohol. Denying self, however, is so much different. 
Denying self is to stop listening to your own voice. Stop relying on your own wisdom. Stop aiming for your own goals. Stop being controlled by your own selfish and sinful desires. When this happens, you will have no will but God's will. You'll have no plan but God's plan. You'll give up every right that you have and hand over total control of your life to the Lord. Paul said, ye are not your own. You're bought with a price. Paul also said, for me to live is Christ. I am crucified with Christ. In other words, I have died. Oh, you do live, but it is Christ who will be living in you. You'll exchange your life for his life, your will for his life. You'll give up everything for him. It doesn't mean that the Lord will strip you of everything, but it does mean that you'll be willing for that to happen if it becomes necessary. If your soul's salvation is important to you, then you will deny yourself by taking Christ on his terms and not on your own terms. And then Jesus says, take up your cross. Self-denial is followed by cross-bearing. And you cannot be a disciple unless you take up your cross. Of course, at this point, the cross is still in the future. It still had to come. It hadn't happened yet. The disciples understood now that Jesus would die, but they didn't know how he would die, crucifixion, was for criminals, it wasn't for good people. So when he first speaks of the cross here, it is their crucifixion he's talking about and not his own. He refers to the possibility that they might even die in his service, and he was right. Many of them did suffer, most of them did die. Even, or every Jew was totally aware of the symbolic significance of the word cross. It meant shame and suffering and torture and death. Now, the Lord Jesus wasn't asking them here to wear a cross as a piece of jewelry around their neck or hang it from their earlobes or get a tattoo of a cross on their arm or even place a cross on the steeple of a building because they didn't have any buildings. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but it was the chief means of execution that was used by the Romans. Historians believe that over 30,000 people were killed by this method during the period of the Roman Empire. That's roughly the capacity of Nottingham Forest Football Stadium. The convicted person was required to carry his cross from the place of judgment to the place of crucifixion. They all knew what it meant, because when a man took up his cross, he was beginning a death march. Of course, not all suffering is a result of the cross. Some people think that the burdens of life are a cross that they must bear like having a wild teenager break their heart or a personal disability or a nasty neighbor or financial problems or some other irritation, but it's not because the ungodly have those things to face as well. The wicked, they also suffer under the weight of sin, some through drinking drugs and immoral living. The wicked suffer many things and sorrows, but it's not a result of the cross. The cross is not even about engaging in Christian ceremonies or feasts, or traditions, or sacraments, or endless meetings. No, when Jesus invites us to take up our cross, it is to enter into a lifestyle of a relentless living death. So Jesus is saying, I am going to suffer and die, so you might as well pick up that cross now, and you might as well carry it with you every day for the rest of your life, because as long as you follow me, that symbol of death and shame will be a sign on your forehead until the day you die. Jesus is saying, if you call yourself by my name, there is a price to pay. First, you say no to yourself. Secondly, you say no to your safety. It 
could cost you your life, it may not, but it could. In AD 97, Paul's disciple Timothy was beaten up when he rebuked and blocked a pagan parade. He died of his injuries two days later. In 1415, Jan Hus, the Czech theologian, was burnt at the stake for heresy against the teachings of the Catholic Church. In 1555, Bishop Hugh Latimer, Bishop Nicholas Ridley were burnt at the stake by Queen Mary I in Oxford for denying the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. During a two-month period beginning on the Feast of St. Bartholomew in August 1572, between 5,000 and 25,000 French Huguenots were slaughtered on the orders of the Queen of France. In 1945, German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred by the Nazis for standing up against Hitler. Bonhoeffer was worried that the church would be captured by a spirit of cheap grace, a discipleship without cost, and a Christian life without danger. And we now all see, of course, that Bonhoeffer was absolutely right to be worried. After the war in 1948, Richard Wurmbrand spent 14 years in a communist prison in Romania. His crime? For preaching the gospel. 1997, Islamists attacked four villages in Algeria during Ramadan and killed 412 Christians. And just last month, Hans Schmidt was left fighting for his life when he was shot in the head whilst preaching on the street in Glendale, Arizona, the United States. And yet these reports, they're all just a drop in the ocean to what's been happening in the world. Because ever since Jesus Christ has given this invitation to sinners to take up their cross, multitudes of Christians have died to self and they've suffered as a result. Martin Luther's life was at great risk to the papacy. And he said, every Christian, every Christian must be a cross man. Now, there is one way to avoid persecution, of course, and that is to compromise. Paul Williams was here last week. Paul, he didn't compromise, and so he lost his job. But God gave him a better job. Enoch Burke didn't compromise. He lost his job, and he's been in prison ever since. But friends, God will bring Enoch out of jail, as he did with Joseph, who didn't compromise either. A.W. Tozer says, one compromise here, another compromise there, and soon enough, the so-called Christian and the man in the world will look exactly the same. But the joy and the peace and the everlasting life that true converts experience is so precious that no amount of personal sacrifice or suffering is too much to persuade them to recant their faith and turn their backs on Jesus Christ. Recently in Laos, a, a Christian called Jai refu refused to recant his faith, and so he's lost his seat on the village council. And then they came along, and they killed his pigs and his poultry, and he lost his livelihood. It's really what Jesus meant when he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Meaning, if you follow me, it's going to mean poverty, no house, no car, no income. I wonder, are we ready for that? Because that day is coming. In that same village, the council forbids the children to go to church. In contrast to that, many Western children wish that that were the case. True converts are willing to identify with Christ and his word, regardless of the cost to them personally, financially, or publicly. A dear Believer, this morning, I would urge you and plead with you, never compromise 
Never, ever surrender, even if it costs you your freedom, even if it costs you your life. J.C. Ryle said, True Christianity will cost a man the favor of the world. He must be content to be thought ill off by man if he pleases God. He must count it no strange thing to be mocked and ridiculed and slandered and persecuted and even hated. My friend, what the Savior offers us is so valuable that we will pay any price to have it. There is a high price to pay for being a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not even death is too high a price to pay. Now, none of us have been required to suffer and die for our faith yet. None of us have ever been persecuted yet. And that's why our faith is so shallow and so weak. But much of our family around the world are suffering every day at the hands of Buddhists and of Muslims and at Hindus. Sure, of course, if you were to stand on a city street in the United Kingdom or Ireland, you might get a little taste of what Jesus is speaking about here. Street preachers have been hackled and shouted down and tracks have been ripped up and equipment have been broken and sometimes they're even arrested by overzealous police officers that don't understand our free speech laws. Back in the day, even George Whitfield preached in the marketplace and the carnivals and even at public hangings and they threw rotten fruit at him and stones and dead cats and they even urinated on him. But friends, none of that is real persecution. But suffering and death is coming. And when it does come, John Knox, the Scottish reformer, gives us this piece of advice. He says, live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. The cross is a result of our faithfulness to and our association with Jesus Christ. It is the cross before the crown, the pain before the gain, but God uses every trial to perfect our faith. Cross-bearing, suffering, persecution, it's what prunes us. Every storm brings us closer to the one who is able to calm the storm. It cleanses us, it drives us to the Lord, it makes us faithful disciples. Alistair Begg says, more spiritual progress will be made through failure, disappointment, hard times and tears than will be discovered as a result of success, laughter, easy times and trivialities. This year, some of us have indeed discovered that the storm in our lives has driven us closer to the one who calms the storm and to the one who loves us with an everlasting love. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says we are to daily take up the cross. So you see, this will become a way of life to be rejected and to be scorned by the world. But can we honestly say that we have taken up our cross when we seem to do so little for the Lord, when we put other things before him, when we'd rather stay at home and watch a game of football on a Wednesday night than to come out here and pray? How many young people have we invited to the barn in 2023? You see, there's a stack of invitations to the barn this sick in the hallway and they never budge. And we walk in and out past them every Sunday. If this is the way it has been for you in 2023, are you really going to waste 2024 in the same stagnant Christianity being a soldier in name only? Or are you prepared to take up your cross and fight? And then Jesus says, follow me. This is total obedience. Not to follow a politician, 
not to follow a pop star or a football team or even a denomination. To follow in the original Greek can mean to imitate. It is a following that is so intense that you literally mimic, mimic and repeat everything Jesus says and does. Jesus said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. J.C. Ryle said, happy is the man who possesses a Bible. Happier still is the man who reads the Bible. But happiest of all is the man who reads it and obeys it. Total obedience and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ is the mark of true discipleship. Paul said, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Imagine a little boy holding his father's hand. He loves his daddy. He adores his daddy. His daddy is his hero. He wants to go where his daddy goes. He wants to do what his daddy does. He wants to be on the tractor with his daddy. He wants to wear the same boiler suit as his daddy. He wants to play football with his daddy. Friends, this is what it's like for a child of God and to follow the Lord. It is an ongoing action. Some people treat Jesus like a Facebook friend. They follow him on a Sunday. They unfollow him the rest of the week. They follow him when things get tough, but they unfollow him when things get better. But following Christ is a radical commitment, a giving up of all of your rights, a surrendering to his kingship. It's a total sellout to God for the rest of your life. A person who is genuinely hungry for God will seek his presence every day, not just on a Sunday morning. If you think you can say a little prayer to make it to heaven and live as you please, then friend, you're only deceiving yourself. Genuine salvation is by faith through grace alone, but genuine salvation will always produce drastic changes in a life that receives it. Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Verse 34 is presented as if the receiver of this invitation is going on a big adventure. Self-denying, cross-bearing, following Christ is like going on an expedition into the great unknown. You see, when we self-deny, we say goodbye to self. When we take up our cross, we pick up our luggage. And when we follow Christ, we begin that journey. In fact, that journey is a one-way trip because people who begin this journey are never going back. Dustin Ben says, no one walks away from Christ who genuinely has Christ. Jesus carried his cross. Jesus walked death through, and so must those who will follow him and be his disciple. And then we have a paradox here. Verse 35. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. The source of the word paradox is the Greek word paradoxus, which refers to things that are strange and unexpected. And here it comes in the form of a statement that seems contradictory, and yet it is true. And the message in this verse is obviously simple. If you live for this short life, then you're going to lose eternal life. If you're preoccupied with self-preservation in this life, your very attempt to save yourself in this brief life will cause your eternal death and destruction in the next life. From a human perspective, this makes no sense. But from a heaven perspective, it makes complete sense. Nothing else makes sense. So it's saying it is better to lose everything in this life to gain everything in the next life. C.T. Studd said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
So Jesus says here, for my sake. He's saying, you're doing this for me. It may mean rejection, abandonment, hostility, martyrdom, and the loss of many things in this life, but you will gain that which is eternal. Paul said, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The trouble is, most of us can't stop looking at the things which are seen. For some reason, we just can't help ourselves. Those who say, if you become a Christian, your troubles will be over, well, they really haven't got a clue what a Christian is. Because when you become a Christian, that's when the war really starts. Every moment you have without affliction and rejection and death is grace. Our, our destiny as the people of God in a world that hates God is, is to be discarded and destroyed by the world. The true gospel is a gospel of blood, tears, broken hearts, abuse, persecution. And there is no way to glamorize that. And if you do, friend, it's not the gospel, it's cheap grace. If you want to follow Christ, there will be a very high price to pay. It will cost you your life. But if we allow ourselves just to think for a moment, a moment on the things which are unseen, then it's not really a cost at all. If you give up your life and even lose your life for his sake in the Gospels, you'll be a winner in the end. But if you live for this life, you'll lose everything in the end. Verse 36, what shall a profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Imagine you've got a sheet of paper with two columns. The heading above the column on the left reads gain, and the heading above the column on the right, it reads loss. And in the gain column, you have the gold, the money, the houses, the cars, the businesses, and the land, everything off the world, everything in the world. And then over in the loss column, you've just got one thing. You've got your soul. If everything in the gain column contained the whole world, and the only thing in the loss column was your soul, and that sheet of paper represented your life, you'd be bankrupt. In the end, you would have gained nothing, but you would have lost everything. The prosperity preachers, they offer health and wealth and everything that is in the gain column for a few years in this life. They are Christianity's version of the professional wrestlers. They're all fake. But with the return of Christ and the end of the world imminent, who would even listen to those charlatans anymore? But sadly, many do, because they still want to hoard and accumulate vast wealth in this life as if Christ is never going to come back and as if they're never going to die. And it really exposes where their hearts really lie and who their God really is. What does it matter if we gain the whole world? Mark Zuckerberg, co-founder of Facebook, has a net worth of over $111 billion. Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft, has a net worth of over $115 billion. Jeff Bezos, chairman of Amazon, has a net worth of $152 billion. And Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, has a net worth of over $253 billion. But what will it matter to them the moment that they die? What will it profit them if they lose their own souls? The rich man in Luke chapter 16 has been in hell for the past 2,000 years. What does it matter to him now uh, that he's in hell? What did it matter? does it matter to him? All the riches that he had, all the property that he owned, the food that he ate, the clothing that he wore for a few years when he was on this earth, now that he's been tormented in the flame, 
in the center of the earth. You see, his problem was he couldn't take his eyes off the things that are seen. Many celebrities give their souls for fame and fortune. It never ends well. Many die as a result of substance abuse or suicide. Matthew Perry, the actor from American sitcom Friends, was only 53 when he died. Before he was well known, Matthew prayed that God would make him famous. He later admitted that it wasn't enough. He said that his fame did not wash away his problems. You see, Matthew was looking to the wrong source for a cleansing. He wanted his riches, but what he really needed, what we all need, is the Redeemer and the power that's in his precious blood. He said he would trade his fame and his fortune to avoid his addictions, but now it's too late because he too spent too long looking at the things which are seen. Hollywood actor Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of doing so that they can all see it's not the answer. Of course, Jim Carrey is absolutely right. But friends, we do not need a Hollywood actor to tell us that because God's word has always said that riches are not the answer. So how important is your salvation? How important is eternal life to you? If you give up a few years of prosperity in this earth to gain eternal life, is that not a good deal to you? You see, your soul lives on forever. So how much is it worth to you? Are you willing to trade your eternal soul for the trinkets of this world? Are you willing to trade your eternal soul to live as you please, to satisfy the flesh and be your own God? My friend, don't believe the lie of the devil. Don't lose your soul for things that you must leave at the graveyard gate. When Satan gave Adam a piece of fruit, paradise was lost. So the next time you're being tempted by Satan, consider not what you're being offered, but what you're going to lose. Friends, please do not lose eternity in paradise for an apple. When we reach the end of our earthly journey, Nothing we've accumulated in this life will matter. The only thing that will matter is our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So how much would you pay for your soul? How much did Jesus pay for it? The truth is, the Lord loves you more than you love yourself. Thirdly, the penalty. Verse 38 Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word ashamed means unwilling because of fear of shame, ridicule, or disapproval. It refers to those who refuse the gift of eternal life and the pardon from the wages of their sin because they will not accept the terms of the contract laid out to them here in verse 34. When we reject the world, and its way is to follow Christ, the price we pay is persecution, reproach, hatred. Don't ever expect to be loved and accepted by a world that hates Christ. And if you do strive to be liked by the world, it will be at the expense of the preaching of the real, raw gospel of the cross. The Christian will be hated when we speak up for biblical ethics. We are hated when we say it's wrong to kill a baby in the womb. We are hated when we object to sodomite and transgender indoctrination in our schools, and not just in our schools. Recently, 
a lecturer at the Methodist Theological College in Derbyshire was sacked after he said the following, homosexuality is invading the church. Evangelicals no longer see the severity of this because they're too busy apologizing for their apparent barbaric homophobia, whether it's true or not. This is a gospel issue. If sin is no longer sin, then we no longer need a savior. And then the college responded by saying, his language was inappropriate. It was unacceptable. It does not represent our views or ethos. They said, we are committed to being a safe and a hospitable place where those with differing convictions are welcomed and encouraged to live and to learn as faithful disciples of Christ. But the Christ of the Bible says to be a faithful disciple, you've got to deny yourself. And that includes all of your sin. I would have sacked everyone in that college and give that man a promotion. You can't even call yourself a Bible college because clearly they are ashamed of what the Bible teaches. Friends, never ever be ashamed to rebuke sin because it was sin that nailed your Savior to a cross. But what about you? Do you work with someone who doesn't know you're a Christian? Why not? Are you ashamed of Christ? Now, we're allowed to be ashamed of many things. If I stood up here this morning and said that I believed everything the government, the media, the scientists told me, I'd be ashamed of that. But by the grace of God, I will never, ever be ashamed of Christ. Jesus says, if you align yourself with a sinful, adulterous generation, if you move your affections from the only one worthy of your affections, if you are unfaithful to God and prostitute yourself to the things of this world, if you refuse to acknowledge me, then I will refuse to acknowledge you. And if you're ashamed of me, when I return with my holy angels, I will be ashamed of you. Payday is coming, and judgment will be based on whether you are ashamed of Christ or whether you embrace Christ. As Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is a power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The question is, do you believe? Are you genuinely trusting in Christ this morning, or are you ashamed of him? What is your soul really worth to you? Because it is eternal. And that means you are going to live somewhere forever. This is a simple and clear invitation that God gives to every one of us. And it requires a personal response one way or the other. Jesus says, he that is not with me is against me. He is saying, if you follow me, you have to be willing to embrace my suffering, my rejection, my death, my cross, and lose your own life. That's what it will cost to be a Christian and to stand with me in this evil day. Now, it costs nothing to sit in a pew. It costs nothing to become a member of a church, but it will cost to be a true believer. It will cost to be a genuine disciple, and it will cost to come to Christ. He's coming back. He's coming back to reward those who denied themselves, who took up their cross, who followed him and have not been ashamed of him or his word. But he's also coming back to punish those who rejected him and received not his word. And they will face God at the judgment and they will spend eternity in hell. But it's not too late. 
Because this morning, Christ wants to rescue you. He wants to forgive you. And he's saying to you this morning, come on to me. Give up everything for me. Call unto me, and I will answer thee. And I will show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. In the words of William Wilberforce, who was involved in the campaign to end slavery throughout the British Empire, he says, you may choose to look the other way, but after this morning, you will never ever be able to say again that you did not know. Amen and God bless. Let's turn in closing to 389. 389. I am not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend his cause. Maintain the honor of his word, the glory of his cross. Now, if you are ashamed of Christ this morning, then don't go singing this hymn. Don't be singing, singing a lie. But if you're not ashamed of Christ this morning, then sing this hymn as if your life depended on it. Sing it as if you mean it, because Jesus Christ is worthy. Jesus Christ is worthy. Let's stand and sing 389.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great men and women of history that denied themselves, took up their cross, and followed you, and were not ashamed of you or your words. We thank, Lord, this morning of uh, Enoch Burke still languishing in a southern jail because he took up his cross and was unwilling to compromise. We pray for him. We pray for his family. We pray for all those in our congregation this morning that have yet to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow you. Lord, we pray for those of us at this moment that are ashamed of Christ in the workplace or some other area of our life. Oh God, help us to take our stand in these evil and wicked days. Whether we live or whether we die, no matter what the cost, help us, Lord, to be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ in 2024. Lord, bless this fellowship. Bless the leadership here. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for the stand that they have taken over the years. We thank you for the faithful preaching of your word in this pulpit. And we pray, Lord, that you will bless our choral service this evening. Bless every aspect of the work here at the Lifeboat, whether it's the children's work or the youth work, the barn, the Sunday morning meetings, the Sunday evening meetings, the outreach work, the, the uh, open air at work at Christmas, Lord. We pray for your hand upon us. Help us, Lord, to give you our all in 2024. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.